What is the tyranny of the experts? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Bill Easterly. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Bill Easterly. Bill is professor of economics at New York University and co-director of the NYU Development Research Institute. He has published more than 60 peer-reviewed academic articles and has written columns and reviews for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, New York Review of Books, and Washington Post. He has served as co-editor of the Journal of Development Economics and as director of the blog AidWatch, and is a research associate of NBER. He's also a senior fellow at Bread. Foreign Policy Magazine has named him among the top 100 global intellectuals in 2008 and 2009, and Thomas Reuters listed him as one highly cited researchers of 2014. He is the author of three books, and one of them, The Tyranny of the Experts, Economists, Dictators, and Foreign Rights of the Poor, will form the basis of our discussion today. Bill, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks, Alex. Good to be here. It's great to have you on. So, Bill, our question today for the episode is, what is the tyranny of the experts? And of course, you have a book full of details that directly answers this and many other questions, so we can never cover everything. But what I'm hoping to do today for our chat is explore a couple of key concepts from it at a high level and really give our listeners an introduction to your thoughts on this topic. So let me just start here with a quote from you, actually. You say in the book, The conventional approach to economic development, to making poor countries rich, is based on a technocratic illusion. What is the technocratic illusion? So a technocratic illusion is the illusion that the answers to development are just technical ones that can be dictated by an expert, and that you don't actually need to take into account politics or the political and economic rights of the people that you're trying to help develop. But of course, that's an illusion because if they don't have those rights and the experts just force on them what the experts think is the right solution, it's often going to turn out to be the wrong solution. If you don't actually consult the people that you're trying to help on what they want, what they need, and what their own goals and plans are, then you wind up just giving them something they don't want. And that is not development. And, and in the book, you also, on this train of thought, contrast the difference between authoritarian development and, and free development. Of course, you started basically talking about forms of authoritarian development there. But can you drill into that a little further and then also contrast that with what you mean by free development? Yeah, so authoritarian development is the combination of uh, the expert plus an autocrat. <laughs> you have a, an alliance of an expert and an autocrat that where the autocrat gives the expert the ability to impose their solution by force. And that is even less likely to be a development, to be useful development for those that you're trying to help. If you force them, if you, t- if you force them to accept what you think is good for them, and you are backed by the power of the state with an army and a police force, uh, that's, that's, not, that's not what we would call development. That's just uh, the expert imposing their own their own plans and preferences on people who don't want them. So true development is, you know, for the individual to say what they want. So, for example, true development is the ability of the individual in markets to choose the goods that they want, and the ability of the individual in political markets, which is 
the democratic system, the free political system, to see what political plans they want, what public goods they want, and reject those they don't want. So the fundamental unit of development is the choice of the person who wants to be developed, the choice of what goods they want, what investments they want, what jobs they want, what occupation they want, what place they want to live. All, all of those choices are what the individual decides upon, and that is the ability of the individual to decide those things, that is development. Right. And, and a little earlier, you said the at least the authoritarian development side of the question where you mostly have what you said is an expert and an autocrat, just to, to, to paint that a little further for our, for our listeners. So you're, you're talking about this would be like, for instance, on the expert side, we're talking about people like economic advisors and the autocrat is obviously, well, we can take our pick, either some sort of autocratic government or government official or even a dictator. Is, is that kind of what you were heading towards there? Yeah. Let me give you a concrete example that's in the book. Um, so... There was a World Bank project in Uganda in a district called Mubende, in which the World Bank experts had decided that this district would be more, would produce more GDP and thus be more developed if they converted the land from what it was presently being used for as subsistence farming to be forestry. And so the World Bank gave a, a loan to a private company to, to develop the land as forestry. So that sounds it sounds good at the beginning that you're, the World Bank is doing something that makes the land more productive, more developed. The World Bank is developing the land more. Uh, but then you look into the details a little bit more. How did this actually happen? Well, it happened by uh, policemen with, with guns coming into the community, uh, shooting the cattle of the farmers, burning down the homes of the farmers, marching the farmers away at gunpoint, away from their own land, and saying to them, this land, which had, you know, the land had been in their families for generations, this land is no longer yours. You know, it is now the property of the, the company producing the forestry project. So when what looks like development at the beginning, when you realize that it was done by, you know, actually impoverishing the people that it was supposed to be developing because their own rights, their ability to choose was violated. That is not development. That that was only possible because the World Bank experts had could count on the police and soldiers from the autocratic government of Uganda to implement that project at gunpoint. And so to impose on farmers something that they did not want and that made them actually worse off. So this is, the, again, the technocratic illusion. The experts think they know that forestry is the answer, but they actually wind up making the local farmers worse off because you didn't respect the, the economic and political rights of the farmers. The farmers were not given the free, free choice whether to sell their land or not to the, to the private corporation. Uh, they, they, that right to respect of their property rights that would have allowed them to sell if they wanted to or not sell if they didn't want to, that did not happen. Instead, the solution was just imposed at gunpoint. And the ability of the farmers to protest politically what had happened to them that that also was not possible. That was because it was an authoritarian regime that did not allow political protests. Now, I imagined to myself what what would have been the situation if that had happened in a free society. You know, right. my, the, the small farming county that I grew up in, Northwest Ohio, if you had had World Bank financed soldiers with guns coming in and taking the land of farmers away, that would have generated quite quite an outcry. Absolutely. In Ohio. 
And it probably would never have happened in Ohio because there would have been such an outcry. Uh, sadly enough, that's, that kind of outcry does not happen when it's poor people whose rights are violated. They don't have the ability to generate an outcry. Nobody is listening to their outcry. And so that's the big difference between free development and authoritarian development. Now, the poor people are unlucky enough to be stuck with the authoritarian development that could often be making them worse off. And only rich people get the privilege of enjoying free development. And when, and when we tie this into the, the the broader idea of like, you know, technocratic rule, technocracy, the, the rule by experts, if you will, you do note in the book that those who want to leverage t- technocracy or autocracy to increase development or alleviate suffering, at least in their minds, you grant that many of these people do think that this is ultimately a, a means to a greater end. But with the evidence and the kind of stories, and again, to our listeners, like, you know, Bill's book is, is full of the examples. So we definitely, we definitely encourage you to check that out in detail. But when you go through all these examples and see these kinds of things, Bill, um, it seems like these means to a greater end, we always get trapped in the means, don't we? A lot of these yes. stories never get to the end. So so yes. what do you, 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 you're with your experience in the field and with folks in this field, where do you think that mentality does come from? If, the, if they always are constantly trapped in these means, but some folks are convinced that these are means to an end, but they never see that end. I guess the question is, what is that end that they think is coming? Yeah, I mean, I think the real classical liberal viewpoint is that freedom is not just a means to an end. It's really an end in itself. You know, that my my right to choose is, is you know, that's part of, but uh, my definition of my own development is that I have the right to choose. <laughs> and I think most of us would define our own development in that way. So, you know, as a sort of thought experiment, if you think of, um, you know, the favorite metric of kind of the, the, the means to an end is the, the end always justifies the means in development is the idea that anything that raises GDP per capita is good. That's one kind of characteristic uh, abuse of the technocratic illusion. And and not not taking into account whether people actually chose voluntarily to accept the things that raise the GDP or whether they themselves benefited from the rise in GDP, as shown by the Uganda example, that they they did not they did not want the forestry project to come in. They they did not choose that kind of increase in GDP of Uganda. And they themselves did not even share in that increase of GDP in Uganda because they were not given the right to choose. So if you do a thought experiment with us as individuals, if uh, you could enforce, you could you could increase my GDP per capita by forcing me to work, you know, 20, 25 extra hours per week. You know, you don't need a much of a technocratic uh, insight to know that increasing working hours usually increases income. But apparently I haven't chosen that solution for myself to work 25 hours more per week that you want to impose on me. And you can claim you're doing it for my own good that you're raising my my GDP per capita in my own household by forcing me to work 24 more hours more per week. Uh, but I, you know, if you take freedom as my definition of my own definition of my own development, then I don't consider myself to be more developed as a result of you forcing me to work. That doesn't that doesn't satisfy my definition of development. I feel worse off when you force me to work hours that I did not want to work to accept an increase income increase that I did not want that I did not choose for myself. I think each of us could could be introspective about that and think, you know, how would you react if someone was forcing you to do something that they thought was in your own good for your own good? 
and 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 at the and at the towards the end of your book actually you you go a step further than just talking about te- technocracy and and this rule by experts but you also say that at the end of the day you know this is you you sort of seem to like express a bit of frustration at the idea like this is ultimately a continuing false bargain from the autocrats that is to say that they they might even admit that some of the things that happens things that happen in the means if you will aren't, aren't the most pleasant in a way but they're ultimately saying well you know to care about material improvement truly you know sometimes we have to overlook the suppression of rights this sort of false bargain um again where do you think that that comes from because these are people that are looking at the evidence is it just that they are and this is sort of continuing off the question i asked previously is it that they they do truly in your opinion have that conviction that that end will eventually be over the horizon or do they just get trapped in sort of you know, this inertia of process in terms of what they think is the best technocratic way to do things or what's going on there, especially if they're going to start giving people false bargains, even in the face of some of these things that they see are bad. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think uh, that's definitely a big part of the story. We, if we, you know, it's very hard to get uh, extremely detailed and rigorous evidence on this, but certainly the, the big picture that we have is certainly suggested that freedom is itself a means to greater greater material income, that it does succeed in getting greater material income. Now, the historical big picture is that the, the societies that have been free for, for quite a while now are the ones that are now rich. Uh, North America, Australia, New Zealand, Western Europe, Japan, more recently joined by nations like South Korea and Taiwan. Uh, those that free model has worked to, to, for countries to attain a very high level of income. And, you know, most countries with a very authoritarian governments are very poor today. Again, it's difficult. It's not easy to resolve causality about this, but at least the, the stylized fact of that big historical picture is that it's very hard to make the case that autocracy and coercion and the denial of freedom is a means to achieve greater material development in the long run when the historical association is just the opposite. And I think we also see that in, uh, in terms of big reforms that have increased the amount of freedom within a society. So, you know, people are always talking about the, the China story as a possible counterexample to the idea that freedom is good for development. But, you know, I think the most important facet of the China experience is, is that they move from this brutal uh, this brutal, you know, historically uh, genocidal tyrant under uh, Mao Zedong, which, you know, d- generated a famine in his own population by his attempt for, to develop the economy with a great leap forward. And then you moved away from that brutal, you know, that, that sort of mass murderer kind of autocracy to uh uh, a regime that is still pretty bad, but at least did open the economy, moved away from Stalinist central planning to a market economy, and created a lot more personal freedom for Chinese citizens within a, a market economy. So, you know, still a long way from political rights, but definitely a big increase in freedom in, in terms of economic rights. And that succeeded in generating, you know, the greatest economic boom that we have ever seen in economic history. And likewise, the former Soviet economies in Eastern Europe and Russia, still very troubled, but still have raised income a lot by transitioning from, you know, brutal communist denials of freedom to uh, 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 at least the the granting of some economic freedoms and some political freedoms, varying, of course, by by each country. 
So th those are the big picture. And then more recently, I think we've seen, you know, a lot of, uh, of growing economic freedom in Africa and Latin America. There's been major economic reforms that took away some of the most uh, coercive and interventionist kinds of uh, restraints on people's economic freedom, uh, such as, you know, brutally high inflation and extremely high taxes on on exports and, and extreme price controls in the economy. And when that happened in Africa and Latin America, there was a, a growth response. There was a revival of the economy when, the, when those reforms happened. And of course, the, 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 the places where reforms did not happen that are still stuck in that kind of coercive system were places like Venezuela, which is a disaster at every, on, on every dimension, material and, and freedom both. Or Zimbabwe, you know, same same story. Um, so you know, I think this uh, the, and of course, you know, let's not even talk about North Korea and Cuba. So, you know, I think the set of of evidence that we have like that is pretty suggestive that there is a false bargain that you think giving up freedom would achieve higher material development. And I'd like to shift gears into a couple of different sort of questions, but before I do, one more sort of in this in this vein. You said in your book, and this caught my attention for sure, and I'll just read the quote back to you. You said, quote, I can sympathize with the with economists who, in their zeal to help the world's poor, unwittingly favor autocracy, because for a long time, I was one of them myself. And I just wanted to quickly stop here and sort of ask you, what do you remember that the turning point in your thinking was to go from what you said your mentality was previously to, to what it is now. Of course, like the the, the the simple, obvious, and perhaps easy answers, you looked at the the data and you looked more into it, and you and and you sort of realized what was quote really going on. But do you remember a specific turning point in your thinking or one specific story that that brought you to to be able to write that kind of statement down? Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, frankly, I was, it took me amazingly long to become aware of this issue, hmm. and uh, but others are apparently taking even longer. So I guess I shouldn't feel bad. Uh, you know, I think um, I realized over time, sometime in the, you know, sometime between a little before 2010, as I was working on a blog called Aid Watch, and I was working on the, the issue of foreign aid and development, I realized more and more just how much there was a blind spot on the issue of political and economic freedom and development, political rights and economic rights. Um, and I guess some of the some of the ways in which I realized that one was um, I was having uh, a great uh, dinner with uh, an Ethiopian political activist whose uh, whose name I shouldn't mention because his I don't want to put him in danger. But um, he was a, a leading politician within Ethiopia who had actually won won a local election, but then had been uh, been imprisoned and expelled from Ethiopia. And he was, you know, at that time still campaigning for the restoration of democracy in Ethiopia. And so he was in New York and we had dinner. It was a really delightful dinner. But at one point he said to me, you know, when I was in jail, I was reading the book by Jeff Sachs, The End of Poverty. <laughs> and uh, I was like, and he was talking, Jeff Sachs was talking favorably about Melis Anawi, the longtime tyrant of Ethiopia who had put, put this, my friend in jail. And my friend was saying, why does Jeff Sachs care so little 
about my democracy, my democratic rights? Why is he praising the the tyrant who put me in jail? Why doesn't he care about me? <laughs> Why doesn't he care about my campaign for democracy in Ethiopia? Why is he siding with the, the autocrat? And that was a big wake-up moment for me. I mean, I disagree with Jeff Sachs on other things, but I had not been as sensitized to that that dimension of the, the neglect of democracy and development, which is not, not at all unique to Jeff Sachs, is it's very universal in development. So, you know, with that, that kind of awareness, I started noticing things like that everywhere, you know, all the time. Now, when I first heard about the Uganda story that I told you about Mubende, which was actually on the front page of the New York Times in 2011, then and then I saw the, the complete silence and indifference and you know, apathy and development on that issue, that no one really cared what the New York Times had exposed about the violation of the rights of Ugandan peasants. That was another kind of eye-opening moment. It's like, why doesn't anyone care? Someone needs to, someone needs to talk about this some more to make people care. <laughs> and uh, so I, I don't think I'm the only one, but I and many others decided to talk, we need to talk about this issue some more. We need to start putting freedom at the center of the development discussion. So as I said, shifting gears a little bit now. So we've we've spent some time now already, a nice chunk of time in a pillar of our conversation talking about the sort of the, the mentality of the technocratic illusion and, and the autocratic mentality and the expert sort of plot, expert and autocrat combination. So now I'd like to get a bit more into, and again, I know there's lots of info about this in your book, but just at a high level where this mentality came from, or at least some recent history of it. As, as a matter of fact, you say in the book, and I, I found this interesting when I read it, you said that the debate between authoritarian development and free development was actually over, already over by the 1950s. So, so can you trace at a high level what, what you meant by this? Because I thought this was very fascinating in the book. I mean, in one, one dimension of the debate was a debate that did not happen <laughs> between uh, the Nobel Prize winners, Gunnar Myrdal and Friedrich Hayek. Right. They actually received the Nobel Prize the same year in the early 70s. And, um, you know, they had been writing on uh, freedom and in economics for, for many decades, you know, uh, at that time. And Hayek was not usually thought of as a development economist, but he certainly was in the, the road to serfdom. He was certainly talking a lot about the issues of technocracy and freedom and and you know what is good for economic development in both rich and poor societies. And Hayek, you know, in a way, was sort of like the, the world's leading liberal liberal development economist, even though he would not have identified as a development economist. Right. But but Myrdal never engaged him on that. Myrdal was very much a, a fan of coercion for development. He uh, he thought the experts knew the answer. He thought the experts should. You know, sponsor programs to go into India and shoot the cows because the cows were just a waste of money, even though the cows were, you know, uh, sacred for ver- for good or bad reasons to Indians, and Indians did not want to shoot the cows. Uh, Gurner Murdoch wanted to go in and shoot the cows. No, you know, no, no right to object. <laughs> and that kind of coercion is something that. Uh, came naturally to Gurner Myrdal and came naturally to the development, other development economists, because it had really started during colonial times when the, the British thought they knew what was best for Africans or for Indians and had enforced you know, their ability to impose what was best with uh, the ability of colonial autocracy. 
that colonial exports, you know, sponsored by the autocratic state, so autocratic colonial state would impose the solutions on colonial peoples. And then, you know, that, that would all be justified in the name of development, that you know, this was all good for the development of Indians and Africans, that they had the British Empire forcing them to do what was best for their own development. And you know, when in reality, what was happening was the British had caused a famine in, in India, you know, the the British were starting to destroy the cocoa economy of West Africa during colonial rule. You know, this, the British imposed this disastrous groundnuts scheme in, in Tanzania that uh, was a, a gigantic waste of money and, and destroyed lots of valuable land. You know, those kind of fiascos under colonial autocracy were really just sort of carried over into the, the new coercive white elephants of the new development establishment under after the end of colonialism. So it's like the, the place of the colonial autocrat was replaced by the supposedly benevolent domestic autocrat to promote development, justifying kind of unlimited and perpetual autocracy in the name of development. And, and as you said, like, you know, you, you did talk about the debate being over by the 1950s, almost, as you said, the debate that sort of didn't happen. And, and, that, and when we talk about uh, Keynes and and uh, and Gunnar Myrdal, you know, what we're talking about as timelines go on, especially as Friedrich Hayek age, you know, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And, and although there is still these discussions about development and, you know, the, the technocratic illusion and the autocratic mentality were still alive and well in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And, you know, a lot of these macroeconomic statistics and, and discussions about measures of uh, development, GDP per capita, and so on and so forth, were, were nice ways for, for them to think about that in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But one thing that I like that your book also explores and touches on is the fact that you can coat all that you want on top of what is fundamentally, historically, often outrightly uh, racist or, or colonialist intentions by different governments, for instance, in the early 1900s and even farther back. Like you talk about Woodrow Wilson and, and Haiti and things like that and, and all these other things that came right. before it. In, right. the, in the book, I think you sort of quipped that this was before the word racism was even in the lexicon and existed, right? Like right. These people right. were just outrightly saying we had to go in and do what we had to do because these backwards people couldn't do it. So I, I found that contrast interesting was you get into sort of more of that as the technocratic mentality around this developed, and we could talk about macroeconomics all we want in post the post-World War II era, but a lot of the same means and measures and attitudes, it seems to be in the same vein, directly connected to that pre-World War II mentality that was a lot harsher, but it's still sort of there yeah. in the seeds. Yeah, well, the, you know what? It sounds, it sounds sort of okay if you say, well, the, the most developed people think that they have the ability to develop the least developed people. <laughs> But then, um, you know, the people who consider themselves the most developed are, are white Europeans and the least developed pe the people they define as least developed are Africans, you know, South Asians, etc. And so to say that if you put it in terms of, you know, white, we whites know what is best for the non-whites, that's, which is basically what colonialized, colonial regimes were saying for 200 years before the end of colonialism. That, that makes clear some of the racist, what today we would recognize as so, as so obviously racist as about the origins of development. And, and, that, and that's even pretending that we're strictly just talking about development, right? That's nothing to say of all the political and actual imperial intentions that were there at the time anyway. So Yeah, I mean, I think development was used as a kind of, uh, you know, public relations gimmick for it to justify uh, imperial ambitions and imperial rule. 
or even you know slavery, conquest, all those brutal ways to use colonial force for the self-interest of the colonizers. Uh, the colonizers were attempting to justify this as being good for the development of the colonized. And actually, we're, we're at about that time. So what we're going to do is we're, we're going to take a quick break right now and to jump in some more questions later. So everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Bill Easterly today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Joe Aragona, Chris Rondolo, and Peter Jaworski. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Bill Easterly today. So, so Bill, I think the first half of our chat was really great. We covered the concept of the technocratic illusion and some of where that mentality comes from. We talked a bit about the sort of the debate that didn't happen, if you will. And again, I'll mention to our listeners uh, uh, yet again that, you know, Bill's book, the mentioned in the, in the bio at the beginning, really, really has a lot more detail on this than we could ever cover here. So we definitely encourage folks to check that out. Moving on to a couple different things right now, though, Bill. I want to talk about something else you you noted in the book. You said there are currently three dimensions now, if you will, that challenge the authoritarian development consensus. And I wanted to run through them real, real quick with you here now, because I think it also provides some insight into more parts of the conversation and, and drills a little deeper into some of the things we discussed at the beginning of our chat. So you said one of the dimensions that's challenging the authoritarian development consensus now, for instance, is an emphasis on history. The idea that history matters and that people in countries aren't just blank slates. You can't just waltz in and say, okay, let's take it from zero to where we want to go. Could you explore that a bit in your own words, like what you mean when you found that there's this blank slate mentality? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I can't remember ever, almost ever in my World Bank career. I was with the World Bank for 16 years from 85 to 2001. that We ever even talked about the history of developing countries or even about the history of developed countries. And, um, you know, when by tr- we basically ignored that history and just said, you know, well, here's the package that we're going to impose in every country. The, the world, the whole developing world's a blank slate. We're just going to impose the same package in every country. It's basically you know, consisted of kind of a, a set of expert recommendations and the aid money to pay for them. But the recommendations are this were the same in every country. And so you might say, you know, first of all, that's, that, that in itself requires brutal coercion to get people from uh, all the diverse people around the world to accept the same program for development, you know, to neglect their own culture and preferences, to accept the, the World Bank expert program for development. That, that's going to be a very hard sell and it's going to require some coercion to make that happen. And second, that neglects the opportunity to learn from history, you know, which again, we were talking earlier about what is the the evidence on freedom and development, freedom and material development, well, that, you know, I think the evidence really requires that you be able to learn from history, that you be able to learn from the fact that, you know, authoritarian regimes usually did fail to generate material development. Free regimes did, were much more successful in generating development. And that freedom includes both economic freedom to trade and, uh, 
and political freedom to, to you know, have some role in choosing who governs you. And I, I, you know, I think when we're open to that, we realize how many different kinds of economic freedom success stories there had been outside of the usual, uh, the usual roster of you know Europe, European and American examples. So, for example, the freedom to trade is something that many societies historically have had already prospered from a lot before the whole development establishment came along. It was a city called Aleppo, in what is now Syria that you know for centuries was a, a thriving thriving city uh, generating you know benefiting enormously from a long distance trade you know across the the land the silk road connecting uh, east asia and europe and you know generated enormous development and profits from that of free ability to trade so you know not not paying attention to history neglects that whole the whole insight of how much traditional societies had already been benefiting from the freedom to trade. So when you took away their ability to trade, that uh, that had catastrophic effects. So, you know, what happened to Aleppo in the 20th century was its trading hinterland was cut off from it because it became part of a nation state of Syria. Oh, excuse my uh, ambulance sounds in the, in the background. <laughs> no worries. The, uh, the great sound current of New York. Yeah, no worries. So, uh, so Aleppo in the 20th century had these kind of disasters that were partly the fault of the development establishment. It became part of the nation state of Syria, was cut off from its trading hinterland uh, that uh, you know existed uh, outside the borders of Syria. And when Syria became very protectionist and interventionist in the economy, with partly because of the advice of World Bank and other development experts, you know, that destroyed the whole trading trade-based prosperity of Aleppo. And and one thing I think is interesting too, as you were saying, like the, this blank slate and this idea that you know it's important to learn from the history. Not only does that work in a certain way where we say, hey, like you know, understanding how people may have had the freedom to trade and the the ability to make their own decisions about their own government and so on and so forth, that's important. But one thing I also liked about the the understanding from history part is that it also sort of. Um, counters and puts a bit of a, a a stop to or at least a pause to anybody as a, who's an expert that's going to come to a society and say, well, why hasn't, hasn't this industry or this situation developed? Well, we can fix that. Well, the idea is that perhaps there's a cultural reason that a certain industry hasn't developed. It's not that other countries are doing it right and these folks are doing it wrong. It could just be based on the spontaneous order that emerged in the society, there's certain things that they might not have. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the simplest and most primitive insights of an economist, that things are the way they are for a reason. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It may be a bad outcome right now. It has been caused for some reason. There is a general equilibrium outcome, and you need to know what all the forces were that produced that bad outcome before you just parachute in and say, I'm going to change the bad outcome, the stroke of a pen. Right. So it's not the case that everyone's just waiting for that World Bank expert, of course. Right, right. So another one of the dimensions that you said was challenging the the authoritarian development consensus was the importance of spontaneous solutions in politics, markets, and technology. And, and you've already covered that. So we've sort of covered that emphasis on history and that as a pair. But then another one of them you were talking about in the book was this idea that non-national contacts are important. Um, and, and the book sort of discussed the idea that, you know, there's a lot of benefit. You know, I think one example was given that 
it must be considered that, you know, for instance, someone traveling or having a different aspect of their life develops contacts and can bring them back to the home country and so on and so forth. That was one thing that was noted in the book. But 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 further to that, why why is this such an important dimension to consider when we are, quote, as you're saying, challenging the authoritarian development consensus? How powerful is this element in your own words? Yeah, well, we're sort of obsessed in development with nation states. We, the only kind of development we're interested in is the development that happens at the unit of the nation state and imposed by the nation state. And that really leaves out enormous parts of how development actually happens, which is why networks of individuals outside of states that are connected across borders. So one example is this uh, group called the Maurits that are from Senegal that have migrated to rich country cities around the world, such as Tokyo and Milan and New York, and have taken over important parts of the retail trade in those cities, especially trade that happens just on the street with uh, retailing on the street. And that the, this, they've sort of achieved this miracle of you know, sourcing finance and supplies from Senegal and, and then connecting with, with other trading networks such as you know, goods from China and then using kind of trusting networks of uh, agents and, and contractors have been able to you know, spread that business all over the world by you know, having informal operators who are selling things on the street and generating prosperity for for all Maurits, both those that are abroad and those that are back home. And you know, the, these there's no formal institutions or state that is making this happen. It's only happening because there's a lot of trust within the Maurit network and the ability to kind of sanction anyone who behaves in a deceptive or cheating way by expelling them from the network. That kind of it's kind of a standard recipe for how individual networks operate. And that's been very successful at bringing development to a lot of Maurits and a lot of Senegalese, both those at home back in Senegal and those that are migrants to, to rich countries. None of that had anything to do with any state anywhere. It was not the U.S. state. It was not the U.S. national government. It was not the Senegalese national government. You know, we would not even, as development economists, we would not even count that as development because we only count Senegalese development as as a development that happened still in Senegal, that happened on the nation national territory of Senegal. So we don't even count as development the enormous gains that Senegalese migrants achieve by migrating. We don't count their their income gains as development. Would it, would it be an oversimplification to say that in many ways, um, development economics in its own way lagged behind the fact that the world itself had become inter- more interconnected and globalized as the time went on, especially throughout the 70s, 80s, and then in the 90s, and that the mentality did not shift along with that. As you said, that it was always around this idea where what's happening in Senegal, you know, as, a, as opposed to now we got people doing more international business, even at an individual level rather than a multinational corporate level. Uh, yeah, I would like to give them that pass. They just sort of got caught by surprise by globalization. <laughs> the only problem with that is the world has been a globe for a long time. <laughs> my my friend Lamp Pritchett likes to say. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. I, I like that. Uh, uh, there's, oh, there's, you know, always been a lot of globalization. So this is not like some new thing that just kind of sprang, sprang from, from nothing in the 1960s and 70s and 80s or 90s. Aleppo was already, a, you know, a paradigm of globalization in the 15th century. It was, and... You know, certainly at the time of uh, before World War One, 
you know, there was enormous international trade going on, including, you know, many parts of what are now cons considered developing countries, the developing world. Uh, there's, you know, enormous migrations going on, trade going on, um, you know, by uh, new technologies continually coming to facilitate that trade even more like the Suez Canal and the Panama Canal. Uh, so there's been so much globalization already. We really don't have any excuse for neglecting it as as really being one of the big drivers of, of worldwide development for all individuals everywhere. Among other objections, to, and you covered this toward the beginning of your book, I thought this was cool too, um, you sort of take care of a bunch of sort of knee-jerk reactions or, or objections that people might throw your way when we enter these sorts of discussions, discuss these sorts of themes, especially from your perspective. One of them is you say that some might just throw at us, for instance, if they hear us talking like this, well, look, and this is you, you framing the objection, quote, someone might say to us, you're just repeating the tired argument about free markets versus state intervention all over again. In, in the book, you respond by saying, this is the main de debate in development that seems to be related to the debate about authoritarian versus free development. But it is not the same debate because the market versus state debate says nothing about the power of the state versus the individual. So this is the, the key dimension. This is the key dimension here to, and I think this is what I want to get to in dissect to, to anybody who agrees actually or, or disagrees with you, in my opinion, both sides, that they need to make sure that regardless of what perspective they're coming from, pro-market or not, or whatever they're sort of classical liberal or, or background or, or not background is that sure that's one dimension but it isn't the whole thing right yeah i think state versus market of course does has generated a lot of useful debates on both sides um but i think the more fundamental debate is autocracy versus freedom so you know does the state is it a does it is it a state in a free society or a state in an autocratic society is it an autocratic state or a, a liberal democratic state because you know that that makes a huge difference between is the state doing destructive, horrific things to the individuals, you know, depriving them of their life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or is the state respecting the rights of individuals? That's a huge difference that we leave out in this whole kind of. When we talk about free markets, we could those free markets are about economic rights, but uh, those are not the only rights that are important for freedom. We need uh, their individual rights that protect the individual against the coercive power of the state to, to imprison them, to arrest them, to expel them, you know, to torture them. Those, those protections are also, uh, those are political protections that you need to have a free society to make possible the kind of free dialogue and free accountability of, of the state to, to to be responsive to the citizens, to respect the rights of the citizens. If that freedom is missing, then even if you have free markets, you could still have very bad things going on. The authoritarian state could be a crony, coercive capitalist that is, you know, turning over the peasants to work as slaves for for capitalists by denying them their 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 rights to choose their own occupation, to to occupy their own land and make their own free choices. So you know, we don't want coercive crony capitalism, uh, that's not free markets. Free markets includes the protection of the rights of individuals against the state. When when this book was released in, in 2014, you, you you talked about there being hope starting in, in this debate and this, this discussion that we're talking about here. You know, some 
some challenge to the consensus that has been missing for decades is what you're referring to. Now, and you have an epilogue in a recent edition of the book that explores some of this and, and where things went from 2014. But but where do you feel now that we're at, now that we're at, now that we are in 2021, I should say, where, where do you feel we're at now in this debate? In 2014, you're talking about senses of hope, rays of light, that the, the debate that was never had might actually be had in, in a more robust fashion. But you said that in 2014 in the book. We're in 2021. Yeah. Has that trajectory continued? Well, it's the uh, last seven years have not been great ones for the cause of democracy and freedom worldwide. And I think, you know, what I totally did not expect at all is that freedom would be, democracy would become more under assault even at home in rich countries. Right. And that it would be, you know, that it would also erode in Eastern Europe where there had been, you know, major democratic achievements after the fall of communism. And that, uh, you know, basically Putin and, and Xi would be sort of gloating, gloating over how well the autocratic cause was doing worldwide, you know, what they've been doing recently. So, you know, that's sort of good news and bad news. The bad news is, of course, that democracy has really gotten even, even worse over the last seven years. The only good news, looking desperately for a silver lining, I can say the only good news is that many more people are more energized to care about democracy now, now that even some of our democratic rights at home are threatened. Maybe we can, you know, be a little more, bit more sympathetic to the democratic rights of poor people in other countries. I think that's a, that's a really good point about, about that silver lining, right? Whether true or not, sort of before... Uh, you know, many of the things we saw in in the West, for example, with some of the, the more populist uh, sentiments rising and, and things like that. Again, whether true or not, there was sort of this mythology that everyone seemed to be comfortable resting with, that these are largely uh, liberal, democratic, free trade societies, and we kind of ex- export that sort of thing. But as you said, now that it's becoming, um, you know, more challenged at home by different factions and, and sectors of um, some, some intellectuals, and uh, you know, as you said, this is something that we, we can't just take for granted anymore, even in our own countries. Exactly. I want to ask you, Bill, we have a lot of students as part of our audience, you know, young people who are interested and concerned about the state of the world and, and do want to help and do take an interest in topics like this specifically, not just for, for an interest perspective, but potentially vocationally. What would you say to a young person going through university, for instance, or their undergrad, who wants to potentially work in development or just generally help those in impoverished or developing countries, and, and they want to make a difference. You know, they listen to uh, almost an hour of us talking about how some of these organizations don't necessarily do exactly what they're supposed to do and so on and so forth. But w- would you advise to someone or at least have them keep in mind if this is a field that they want to get into? Yeah, I think um, I think one, <clears throat> one, one mistake that students and advocates often make is they think the only way they can get involved is doing something very concrete you know, like supplying insecticide-treated bed nets to poor people in Malawi. Uh, and only that, sort of, only that kind of concrete action counts as being doing something for development. But, you know, I think we need to have a much broader definition of what doing something <laughs> means. It includes, you know, advocacy for democratic rights of poor people. It includes, advocacy is something I think is, very extremely underrated in the development world. That, you know, again, it's that part of the technocratic illusion that we think that somehow the concrete action of providing malaria bed nets is somehow superior to the, the, what seems like a vague and general call for greater democratic rights for poor people. 
but of course, if the if the cause of rights for poor people fails completely, then the malaria bed nets are not going to do a lot of good. They're going to be misused, misspent, misallocated by authoritarian regimes that don't care about the needs of poor people to be protected from malaria. If, if there is not a, an advocacy of rights that succeeds at fixing the fundamental cause of poverty, which is oppressive autocratic rule, then uh, you know the, all the concrete actions go, go for nothing. So uh, that's why it's so important to be engaged not only, I, I sympathize with people doing concrete things. That's great. I'm just saying that's not the only thing that you can do in development. If you're signing up to campaign at a, a, an advocacy level, an intellectual level, at, a, the, the, at the level of generating new ideas and new, new breakthroughs for thinking about freedom and the ways to spread freedom and advocate freedom, then you're also doing great service for development. You don't have to be you know, providing the bed net to be counted as doing great service. So perhaps it's even fair to say just starting to think about these ideas in a certain ways, it's a small victory unto itself rather than thinking about, as you said, what, what kind of uh, equipment or whatever else we can bring to a different country, for example. Yeah, I mean, I think the role of advocacy is something we recognize much more at home. You know, things we care about at home, you know, advocating for women's rights or for civil rights for African-Americans. You know, n- nobody would would you know nobody would say insulting things about those kind of advocates right how the the kind of the same kind of advocates for freedom and equal rights and development somehow get dismissed as being kind of like useless uh useless sort of generalizers who you know just postulating area principles and not doing anything concrete for development (laughs) this this kind of insulting attitude towards anyone who's who's trying to do the same kind of advocacy that we respect so much in domestic the domestic environment at the international level. And I frankly I don't really understand why that why there's that double standard. Why why we don't are, are not that quick as just equally quick to recognize the value of advocacy in the in, in the development world as we are in the domestic world. Well, Bill, our time is pretty much almost wound down here. So I think I'm going to move us to our formal wrap up. So let me say we've talked about a lot in each episode. I want to make sure that the guest actually has the last word. So let me say if we can try and bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question today, let me ask you, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on what the tyranny of the experts is and and what we've talked about today? If you wanted to leave people with one or a couple of takeaways, that's, that's the main takeaway for what we talked about today, what would those be? I think it's pretty simple. That Don't think of development as being some kind of material technological fix of a problem. Think about development as giving poor people the rights, political and economic rights, to solve their own problems. Short and sweet. Thank you very much, Bill Easterly, for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you. Pleasure talking to you, Alex. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.